Second Chronicles this evening. Second Chronicles chapter ten as we continue our journey in Chronicles together. Last time as we left off, it was Solomon's reign coming to an end after 40 years and building the temple and expanding the infrastructure throughout Israel and a a reign that had more wealth and luxury and opulence, probably more than any other king in history, maybe in some ways, certainly in all the kings of the nation of Israel. Solomon's reign has come to a close, and as we saw, Solomon was a example, certainly, of someone who began well, but he didn't finish very well. He started out with a heart that was tender towards the Lord. He was doing what was right. He was seeking the Lord, but gradually he allowed his heart to be turned away through just periodic compromises and concessions in different areas in his life, whether it was multiplying gold and silver beyond what he needed to in his life and the excess of that, or uh, turning to uh, multiplying horses and trade and trying to expand his uh, powers and his own personal resources and putting his confidence in those things rather than in the Lord to take care of him and the nation, or certainly, of course, ultimately, as uh, the Bible tells us, uh, having uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines, just to the full extent of indulging his lusts and polygamy and just uh, multiplying to himself wives and relationships, having a harem that was so expansive. These things, the Bible tells us, began to turn his heart away from the Lord. And these things certainly, unfortunately, uh, had an influence upon his children as well. And we see now as we come to the successor of Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, chapters 10, 11, and 12, uh, Lord willing, if we can cover them this evening, they're not real long, and they kind of encapsulate the ministry uh, and the reign of, I guess better say reign rather than ministry of Rehoboam. Uh, we see a lot of the same things reflected in Rehoboam in the son that existed in the life and the lifestyle of his father. And fathers do have a tremendous influence upon their children. I mean, parents do generally, uh, but statistically, whether within the church or outside of the church, church in the secular realm, the influence of a father is huge, Uh, whether intended or not, and whether that be in a positive way or in a negative way, uh, statistics have always proven that throughout the history of mankind, and we see Rehoboam duplicating a lot of the same patterns as Solomon as well in a very negative sense. So chapter 10 opens up now, telling us that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, reigned in his place. Chapter 9 ended, verse 1 of chapter 10 says, and Rehoboam went to Shechem, which was a prominent place in Israel. A number of different things happened uh, at Shechem, as we see throughout the Old Testament. And it says, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make Rehoboam king. So it was known that Rehoboam was to be the successor for Solomon, and they went to the area of Shechem. The people came together for his coronation service to acknowledge and recognize him officially as their next king there. Verse 2 tells us that during the time of this transition of power, as Solomon died and Rehoboam took over, verse 2 tells us it happened during that time when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, that is, that Solomon had died, that Rehoboam, his son, had now ascended to the throne in his place as a successor. Parenthetically, we're told he was in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon that Jeroboam then returned, that is back to Israel, 
from Egypt. Now, uh, the writer of Chronicles here assumes that you and I and the readers, that is the post-exilic Jews coming back from their time in exile, were familiar with the story of Jeroboam. Uh, all the way back in 1 Kings was where we looked at that. Again, if I can just refresh your memory, 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that where Jeroboam comes into this picture here, because we see him referenced in just a, a very uh, you know, short way here, not a lot of explanation. King Jeroboam, remember, was one of the, you might say, foremen that was working under the leadership of King Solomon. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Jeroboam was... Uh, a man who uh, was young and he also was a man who was industrious and mighty in valor and Solomon had made him an officer, it says, over the labor force in the house of Joseph. So he was a very well-respected, very industrious, successful foreman, leading a lot of the projects and the building expansion that happened under Solomon's reign. And ultimately, he ended up kind of turning against Solomon during the time of Solomon's decline morally and spiritually. And in the midst of that, what took place, 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us, is that God sent a prophet named Ahijah to Jeroboam. And it says that there was a new garment either the prophet was wearing or Jeroboam was wearing. We don't know. And it says that the prophet took that garment and he ripped it into 12 pieces. And he told Jeroboam, take 10 of these for yourself. And it says that his message from the Lord to him was that the Lord was going to tear away the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give it to the 10 tribes, at least of it, 10 tribes, to Jeroboam because Solomon and the kingdom had forsaken the Lord and worshiped other gods and were no longer walking God's ways. So Jeroboam receives this prophetic message from the Lord that God was going to tear away the leadership and the kingdom from Solomon and that 10 of the tribes were now going to be turning in their allegiance to Jeroboam. Now, when word of this got out, Solomon, not liking that and hearing that the kingdom was going to be torn away from him, the majority of it anyway, 10 of the 12 tribes, he became very insecure and he kind of put out a uh, really an execution threat against Jeroboam. Jeroboam, being concerned for his welfare and life, fled to Egypt where he remained for the duration of Solomon's reign until this time we read about here in chapter 10 in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, where Solomon has now died and Jeroboam, having that prophecy... Uh, feels a little bit safer now returning back that Solomon has died. Again, this hasn't fulfilled itself yet. It's something God gave to him as a prophetic word that the kingdom was going to be torn away from Solomon's household and that it was going to be given to him, 10 tribes of it. But in the interim, he had been dwelling in Egypt kind of for his own safety and welfare. So uh, that's sort of the background when chapter 2 tells us it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard that Solomon had died and Rehoboam, his son, had come to the throne that he had fled there from the presence of King Solomon, that he then returned from Egypt. And we told in other texts the reason why he returns is because the people sent word to him asking Jeroboam to come back because they want to lead a revolt and they figured Jeroboam would be a great man to help them accomplish this. 
So verse 3 then tells us that they sent for him, that is for Jeroboam, and they called him to come back, that is the people. And Jeroboam, together with a gathering of all Israel, they came and they spoke to their new king, spoke to Rehoboam, saying to him, making this request, verse 4, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So under Jeroboam's kind of direction as their ambassador, the people of Israel send word to their new king, Jeroboam, and basically what they're in essence asking for is tax relief. They say, look, under the reign of your father Solomon, which remember, Solomon had incredible wealth. I mean, we saw that in our prior chapters. He also expanded building projects under like anybody ever before. And in order to do that, it required a lot of money and it required a major labor force to be able to do that. So in some ways, though Solomon began well initially and he wasn't subjecting the people of Israel to be his slave force, ultimately that started to change over time. And toward the end of his reign, he began to kind of build a lot of things that he did on the backs of his own people by conscripting them to be his labor force, his slave labor, and heavily taxing them to take from them a lot of money to continue to fund all of his building projects and things that he was doing. So the people here, again, not much changes, nothing new under the sun. Even in 2019, the people say, look, uh, could you lower our taxes? Uh, we were looking for tax relief under the prior administration. We were heavily taxed. We were heavily burdened. A lot was required of us. And we're simply asking, since you're the new man in the place of national leadership, they say your father made our yoke heavy. So therefore, we're just making requests. Would you lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he had put upon us? And if you do that, we'll be glad to support you. We'll serve you. We'll stand together with you. Would you be willing to take this into consideration? And this was a very reasonable request. What they're saying is not exaggerated. There was a heavy burden. The people were exhausted and the people were really being drained of their financial resources. There was indeed fact to what they were saying. It was a reasonable request. So as this request comes now to the new king who's just taken over, verse 5 tells us that Rehoboam said to them regarding their request, come back to me after three days, and then the people departed. Now in that, you have to commend Rehoboam. His first initial response to their request was rather wise. Rather than just reacting in the moment or giving an initial response to this request, he said, you know what? Give me three days to take that into consideration before I give you an answer. And let me just say, whether it is a major decision like this, you know, a major governmental decision or any big decision in our life for that matter that has any level of bearing or consequence of how the results are going to unfold, it's always a wise thing to not a lot of times answer immediately, to take some time. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's two, three days like this to say, you know what, I hear what you're asking, but I'll tell you what, let me have a few days to kind of just mull that over 
to think that through, to pray about it, to just kind of sort through maybe the, the initial thoughts or feelings I have as I'm being asked this. And maybe sometimes what we're asked, we sometimes maybe when we're asked something initially, it may kind of you know be a little personal. We might take a little offense to it. Again, put yourself in Solomon's sandals here a little bit. They basically just came and said, your dad and his administration burdened us down with all kinds of heavy taxes. He overtaxed us and he used us as a slave labor force. So, I mean, do better than your dad. Well, at the end of the day, that's his dad, right? I mean, I imagine there had to be a little bit of a personal connection to that. Maybe he felt a little offense. So he just says, you know, give me three days. Let me have a few days to think this through, to get some counsel, to come to a good decision. And I think it's a really wise pattern there when we make decisions in our lives. Be careful The Bible warns us, Proverbs speaks of it as well, about making hasty decisions, making quick decisions, just responding in the moment where really we're not then responding, but a lot of times we're just reacting. And a lot of times we can make foolish decisions. We don't think things through the impact, the bearing, and we can really make bad decisions. And having a day or two or few can be a really beneficial thing to be able to then come up with a good decision ultimately if you carry out the process. Now, we're going to see Rehoboam doesn't do too well carrying out the process, but I got to give him credit for his initial response there in verse 5, give me a few days. So during these three days, it says verse 6, the king consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he was still living, saying, how do you advise me to answer the people? Now, let me just say one thing from the start from verse 6 there. Isn't it amazing to take into consideration, it says that he went and consulted the elders, that is, these men who were advisors or counselors to his father, King Solomon, during the time of his reign. What was one of the distinguishing marks of King Solomon? God gave him supernatural wisdom unlike any other king who had ever ruled before. Remember, he asked for wisdom and God supernaturally imparted divine wisdom to this man Solomon to make decisions, to understand things. I mean, he just, beyond his capacity and his age, just had incredible God-given wisdom to handle affairs, to deal with matters wisely, to make good decisions. And yet, look what verse 6 says, he still had advisors. He still had counselors. If anybody could have said, look, I don't need counselors. I'm the wisest man who ever lived. I mean, God gave me my wisdom. What do I need you for advice for? But apparently Solomon still had advisors. He still had counselors. Again, throughout the book of Proverbs on multiple occasions, we read that, that you know, plans are established by seeking wise counsel, that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And it is wise to have people around us, no matter how wise we may already be, no matter how you know, much understanding we may have in given situations, it is always a beneficial thing to still have some advisors in your life, some people that you can share things with, that you can kind of bring things before and you listen to their input before you make a decision so you can make a well-informed decision. Because people see things differently than we do. And sometimes they see things that we don't see at all. And so any wise person, the greatest demonstration of their wisdom is that they're willing to actually listen to other people. 
and to not just be a maverick and oh, I'm just going to do this and I'm in charge of it, but they actually take time to kind of get some input from other people before then they exercise what they need to do as a leader to be decisive and then carry out a decision. So here, I just love to see this example. Solomon had advisors and Rehoboam, the first thing he does is he goes and consults the elders who were probably older and those who were already in this position of kind of being, you know, counselors, cabinet members, if you would. They were those just like in a current administration who were there, who gave input to a leader. And he goes to them and he says, look, you've helped my father for years and years. You guys have lots of experience. How do you advise me to answer the people? What do you think I should tell them? What do you think I should say? And they spoke to him saying, if you are kind to these people, that is you're respectful towards them, you act like you care about them and you're here to serve them and not just use them to serve you. If you're kind to the people and you please them, that is you take into consideration their desires or their interests and you look to their interests beyond just your own as a, as a public servant should and you speak good words to them then they will be your servants forever. So the wisdom of these elders and advisors that were already there as counselors, they say, look, respect the people, have respect for them, treat the people well, you know, be courteous, take into consideration what they say actually has some credence to it. And though a wise leader can't always listen to the voice of the people because that never works either, a wise leader should at times still be willing to, to weigh and take into consideration if a genuine concern or a legitimate need is brought before them before they make decisions about it. So they say, look, what the people say here has, has some credence to it. Take into consideration what they're saying. Your father did kind of burden them. Maybe if you're kind and helpful to them, uh, you'll win their approval. And then they'll be supportive of you and loyal to you. It'll benefit you. It'd be a great first act. They're saying as your uh, their new king, uh, take into consideration what they're saying. So they give them really sound advice to take into consideration what's best for the people and not just what would be best for himself. Good sound advice from these older counselors. So verse seven, they give that advice. But verse eight says, but he rejected the advice and see good advice is good as long as you take it into consideration. <laughs> You can have great advice, but if you don't do anything with it, it doesn't really benefit you much. And this is where this young man makes a mistake and shows his youthful immaturity as a leader. He rejected the advice which the elders had given to him, and instead he consulted the young men who had grown up with him, those who had stood before him, and said to them, what advice do you give? In other words, I mean, what they said sounded wise, but I don't know if I really like it. I'm kind of looking for somebody who would say something more like what I want to hear right now, not, not somebody who would give me advice that would be in the best interest of a wise decision. Uh, what do you think? Maybe if you give me your advice, your advice will line up more with kind of what my preferences are. And that could be a very common thing where you know people go around looking for advice. And typically after you advice, ask advice from those who really would give you wise advice, once you keep asking for advice, a lot of times what you're doing is not really looking for counsel. What you're looking for is just somebody who will say what you want to hear so that it will confirm what you want to do and you can then just kind of carry that out. So that, that's kind of what you see Rehoboam doing here. He's apparently going first to those who were the elders and counselors who were his cabinet members that were already well experienced. They've given him really great advice, 
but he doesn't want to carry that out because he's got his own personal agenda. So he goes to his buddies. He goes to the other young men in the kingdom who grew up with him, who were around him and kind of friends with him. Uh, and he says, what advice do you give me? What, what do you think I should do? Well, verse nine, as he asked that, how should we answer this people who've spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke of your father has put on us. The young men said to him who had grown up with him saying, Thus you should speak to the people who've spoken to you saying your father made our yoke heavy and make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges, which is even a more painful way, a whip with bone and lead and glass attached to it that would literally rip off the flesh. It was even more painful than a whip. So in essence, the, the young men around him who he goes and gets input from, they say, Solomon, listen, you can't listen to the old guard here. I mean, the, the, Solomon, these are, di- I mean, or Rehoboam, these are different days here. You can't show weakness. If you show weakness, they'll just overrun you. You need to assert your authority, man. You need to let them know who's in control. You need to throw your weight around and you need to say to them, excuse me, you're asking me to lighten your load. You think my father was tough on you? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think my dad gave it to you tough? He says, if you think what my dad did, he says, my little finger is going to bring down more weight and more pressure and more heaviness on you than my father's entire being did. And they said, look, that's the way you should answer them. Don't give them an inch. If you give them an inch, they're going to try and take a mile. You need to stand your ground here and let people know who's in charge. And they kind of encourage him instead to exercise uh, really more of a strong stance and not show too much care for the people. Well, Verse 12, so Jeroboam and all the people came back to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed them to saying, come back to me the third day. And then the king answered them roughly. King Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, that is those who were wise, older men who gave him good counsel. He rejected that advice. And instead, he spoke to them roughly according to the advice of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. And my father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So he opts to basically do really what the younger men tell him. And as the result of this, it says he answers them, notice, not kindly, not compassionately, not being understanding, says verse 13, he answered them roughly. And this just causes a a spark that starts an entire forest fire for the nation for decades and decades to come. One man's arrogance, one man's foolish decision, the far-reaching impact of that was huge. You know, the book of Proverbs tells us in chapter 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And what a fitting proverb that is for what happens here. He answers them harshly and cruelly with no compassion, shows no respect towards the people. And as a result of that, he rejects not only the good advice given to him and comes down with the very foolish advice and the foolish decision, but also the way he goes about it just sparks some major anger and resentment in the hearts of the people. Look, it's one thing to, be, to, to follow bad advice. That's bad enough. 
And it's one thing to handle things where you make a poor decision. But if the way you go about it on top of it is rough and harsh, you're just going to magnify the problems relationally with whoever it is that you're interacting with. And again, if Solomon or Rehoboam here teaches us anything, one of the things he clearly teaches us is how not to lead. So whether you are leading in your home or leading in your marriage or leading a group of people and whatever it may be, Rehoboam is a fitting picture, a case study for how not to lead. How not to lead people. Because everything he does is just completely foolish and it just causes such angst among the people that it causes a, a tremendous riff in the relationships here. Because notice verse 15 as he comes down with these harsh words, it says, So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from God, interesting, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, here's what, this was their response, they were angered. The people answered saying, What share have we in David? What, what interest do we have? participating in the dynasty of King David and his family line. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. The idea is they're rebelling here in anger. Everyone to your own tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, David. We are done with you. We want nothing to do with your family's dynasty anymore. So all Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. That is, he continued to remain over the southern kingdom. And, and to this point now, we have the divided kingdom that happens around 920 BC, where the 10 northern tribes break away from the southern kingdom. They follow Jeroboam and make him their first king, which will then lead to the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the nation now divides and only Judah and Benjamin stay faithful to the family line of David. And King Rehoboam, it says, sent Hadadurim, who was in charge of revenue, but the children of Israel stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee back to Jerusalem and all Israel, verse 19 says, all Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So we now come to what we refer to as the divided kingdom. And again, you notice how this happened as the result of Rehoboam's arrogance, his pride, his lack of respect in dealing with people, no courtesy, his abusing of his authority, trying to take control of people rather than just have healthy influence upon people. And look, as a leader, always understand this. If you find yourself starting to try and control someone, that means you've lost influence. When a leader becomes controlling in a job place, in a family dynamic, in a church capacity, when somebody starts trying to exert their authority and take control and be controlling and get rough and forceful, what that indicates is they've lost influence. They've lost respect and they've lost influence, so now they're trying to use force and control. And Rehoboam does this, and it causes a great ripple effect. The nation becomes divided. They rebel against David's throne. You know, it's interesting, verse 18 there, that it tells us Rehoboam, you read it, it says he sent Hadoram, his revenue uh, collector of taxes, to the children of Israel, and they stoned him with stones. I mean, basically, this just goes to show you how naive 
and the youthful ignorance of Rehoboam, all this rift goes on and then he sends out his guy who's in charge of the revenue and he says, hey, go up there and try and collect taxes anyway. And they just stone him and he dies. In other words, what Rehoboam does there is he basically says, I'm just going to pretend like nothing just happened and go on as business as usual. Let me give you a little piece of advice. When you cause a major relational issue, ignoring it doesn't work. If you cause a major relational issue and rift and you cause anger and animosity and offend and hurt, just pretending like it didn't happen, brushing it under the rug and going on business as usual, it doesn't work. There's a fitting example of that. Oh, let's just pretend like nothing just happened. Go collect taxes for me. And they say, oh, we'll show you how we feel about that. And they stone him and they kill him. It just doesn't work. And Rehoboam shows his foolishness in the midst of these things. Now, before we go on to chapter 11, can I draw your attention, if I could, back to verse 15? Because notice, as all these events happen, it says in verse 15, the king did not listen to the people and their request. They rebel against him. And it says, for the turn of events was from God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the hand of Ahijah the prophet to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now what that's referring to is this whole divided kingdom that happens here and the 10 tribes going and giving their allegiance to Jeroboam, which we talked about earlier, became a fulfillment of the prophecy given to Jeroboam years earlier in the time of Solomon's reign. And even Rehoboam's foolish acts, it says, these things contributed in a way whereby the whole turn of events, it actually says, was from God. Now here you have God's sovereignty and man's free will happening simultaneously and God coordinating those things with absolutely no problem. Basically, what you have is God allowing Rehoboam to make foolish decisions. He allows Rehoboam to act like a fool, to exercise his own free will and to make poor choices and bad decisions. And yet God still utilizes that to bring about his ultimate will and plan, which is to tear away from the throne of Solomon, the reign that he once had, and to give a part of the kingdom to Jeroboam. And again, just a fitting reminder here, the turn of events, though it seemed bad, was actually of the Lord. God was still using bad situations to ultimately bring about his ultimate plan and will. And we see this throughout the word of God. It's a great encouragement in many ways because Ephesians 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, people can even make bad decisions, do dumb things, harm people, hurt people, cause major problems circumstantially, and yet somehow God in his sovereign wisdom and control over everything, because he superintends, he can make the turn of events ultimately bring about his own purposes in the end. You know, we read of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it tells us, there of Joseph, that Joseph at the end of his life, after his brothers abused him and mistreated him and put him through misery for years and years, at the end of it, remember Joseph, when he's looking at his brothers, he says, look, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good, to actually bring about salvation for all of the people of Israel because I'm in this place where I'm at in Egypt today. And again, Joseph understood that God let bad things happen that people did. God didn't cause the bad things, but the people did what they did in their evil and their sinfulness, and yet God brought about a turn of events that ended up bringing something good in the end. The Bible tells us in the book of Numbers that God can turn a curse 
into a blessing. The psalmist tells us that God can make the wrath of man to praise him somehow. And what an encouraging thing. Recognize sometimes when things take place, yes, it may be people have done wrong things. Maybe even you and I have been the one to do bad things or make foolish decisions and it causes a turn of events, but that turn of events ultimately can be something that God brings about still his purposes in the end ultimately. So that's what happens here. The Bible tells us that, but verse one of chapter 11 says, now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes that remain loyal to him, 180,000 chosen men who were, notice, warriors. Why? To fight against Israel, the people in the north, that he might restore the kingdom back to Rehoboam. So Rehoboam, early on in his reign, makes this poor decision, these foolish actions, which lead to the greater majority of the nation revolting and turning away from him and he comes back now to his home base there in jerusalem with the limited amount of support he has from judah and benjamin and at this point he gathers together a huge military force and it says he's going to go up and he's going to start a civil war and he's going to fight against the people up in the north in israel and he's going to restore back by force the nation to himself in his mind He's angry, and in his pride and his arrogance, he says, I don't care if you want to submit to me or not. I'm going to force you to come back under my allegiance. So he's ready to go launch a full-scale civil war and shed the blood of a bunch of men within Israel who were supposed to be brothers who ultimately were all part of the same nation. He's going to go start a major war to try and restore the kingdom back to himself. And let me just say, sometimes this is something that can happen when we make a bad decision. Sometimes we make a bad decision, consequences unfold, and then we, for whatever reason, even if in good intention, we try through an effort of the flesh to force things to go back to the way that they were. And so sometimes then we say, well, I don't care what I got to do. I will launch a full-scale war because I'm going to fix my problem and I'm going to fix what happened. And sometimes we in the flesh are willing to actually do things that would hurt and harm people and involve people in an unhealthy way to try and force things to come back to the way that we want them to be after God allowed them to kind of unfold circumstantially the way that they did. That's what Rehoboam's doing here. He's going to try and use his authority to launch an attack now. Verse two, notice, but the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, again, this prophet who at times heard from God and spoke his word. And the word of the Lord was this, go speak to Rehoboam, verse three, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin saying, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Let every man return to his house for this thing is from me. The word of the Lord comes and says, look, I know in your heart, your feelings, your mind, your perception, everything within you is saying, no, we need to fight to change this. We need to use force and do what we have to do to regain control and to make things go back the way that we originally thought they should. And the Lord says, no, no, no. 
what you're trying to fight against. He says, the turn of events was from me. This thing is from me. Don't fight against it. Let it happen. God's saying, leave it be. Let it be. The battle belongs to the Lord, God would say. God doesn't want us at times engaging and trying to fix things through the battle and forcefulness of our own flesh because typically all we end up doing is making bigger problems. And that's what would have happened here. This would have been a full-scale civil war had they carried this out. So a word from the Lord comes and says, don't fight against this because this thing is from me. And look, I don't know, perhaps you're here this evening and maybe there's something going on in your life and it's not the way you want it to be. We've all been there, right? And I don't know what the dynamics and circumstances, but maybe you're trying to fight against something and resist something and change something or make something happen. And maybe the Lord is saying, stop trying to fight against it. Stop trying to fight it. This is from me. Let it be. Let it be. Allow it to be what it is. Don't fight against it. Don't try and force it to go the way that you want it to go. Humble yourself under the hand of the Lord. Submit and yield it to God. And just let it be something that God sorts out in his way. And perhaps the Lord is saying, this thing is from me. Let it be as it is. Be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes we need to hear that counsel from the Lord. Lest we make a bigger problem or a bigger mess. Well, thankfully, verse 4 says, Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord, the people, and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. And a full-scale civil war was averted because of that. A lot of bloodshed, a lot bigger problems could have happened. Thankfully, they listened to the word of the Lord. And when you hear God speak to you, and God's telling you, don't do something, God says to us sometimes, I know the Lord will say to me sometimes, you know, whether it's I want to respond to something in a certain way that maybe is fleshly, not too spiritual. And the Lord says, stand down, buddy. (laughs) Stand down. Shut your mouth. Humble yourself. Stand down. The problem's your pride. The problem's your perception. And God says, you're my servant. That's not the way I want my servant to behave himself. Stand down. Humble yourself. And boy, we then have a decision. Are we going to listen to the authority of the word of the Lord when God's word confronts us as it does sometimes? Or are we going to push past that warning? God says, obey my word. It's safe. It's wise. And I tell you, we do real well when we obey the word of the Lord sometimes and we turn back and we just let go and leave God to be in charge so they obeyed the words of the Lord and they averted, as I said, a full-scale civil war by not attacking Jeroboam. So Rehoboam, it says, dwell in Jerusalem there and he built cities in defense of Judah. So he's trying to fortify now the southern kingdom where God's still allowing him to reign. And he built up Bethlehem. That is, he's reinforcing these areas and Etam and Tekoa, Bethzur and Sokah and Adullam. And Gath and Meresheth and those other cities there described, which are in Judah, and there were fortified cities. And he fortified, verse 11, the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of oil and food and wine. So he's kind of fortifying different areas to try and reinforce his territory. So at least he can hang on to control of the southern kingdom. Also, verse 12, in every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. So the, the 
two tribes of Judah and Benjamin stood in support of David's dynasty, which really was the dynasty that God had appointed, and they stay faithful to them. Well, verse 13, Jeroboam, when he came into power, as the other accounts tell us in Kings, um, he, he, like others, forfeited a great opportunity. Because very quickly, he in his own insecurity started reestablishing his own worship system up in the north. Remember, he created the golden the calves for worship and said, oh, well, we don't want you to go down to Jerusalem here. We're making a convenient worship system for you right here in the north. And he was afraid, just like Rehoboam and in his insecurity, that the people might turn away from him or turn back to Rehoboam. And in his insecurity, he got off the beaten trail and took the people into tremendous idolatry. And all types of unhealthy things. And that's what these verses are, in essence, summarizing. It says, And from all the territories, the priests and the Levites, who were in all Israel, they took their stand with him. That is, ultimately, with Rehoboam in the south. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the proper place for worshiping God, according to the prescribed manner, was happening. And his sons had rejected them from serving the priest to the Lord. And then, and this is again referring to Jeroboam in the north, the new king, he appointed for himself priests for the high places. Look what it says, verse 15, for the demons. That doesn't sound good. And for the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years, uh, and walked in the ways of David and Solomon for three years. So for the next few years, thankfully, uh, according to the you know wisdom exercised here by the Levites and the priests throughout the territories of Israel, they were willing to make sacrifices to do what they could to keep in support of what consistently God had wanted regarding the people, which was to worship there at the temple in Jerusalem with the sacrificial system and to continue to recognize still that though Rehoboam had failed that God's covenant was with the house of David. And so it says they were willing to give up their lands and their possessions. They were willing to sacrifice personally in order to come and to remain giving allegiance. It says, verse 16, to set their heart to seek the Lord and to strengthen the throne there in Jerusalem. And they, they show a great example of allegiance in the midst of great difficulty. Rather than taking the avenue of convenience which was to stay there in the northern kingdom and enter into idolatry and demon worship and, and all these foreign practices, they were willing to give up their lands, give up their possessions and say, you know what, we are willing to live with less and be right in our relationship with the Lord. We are willing to sacrifice extra monetary gain and comforts and pleasures of worldly things so that we can seek the Lord first and foremost. And you know, it reminds me of what Jesus said as he gives wisdom to us in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 6, as we often become so concerned and entangled with the affairs of this life and all the things that we need. And Jesus said, look, your father knows that you need all these things. Stop chasing after them. 
like the pagan Gentile people do, stressing and worrying. What are we going to eat and what are we going to wear and how are we going to make it? And we got to establish ourselves materially. And Jesus says, your father knows that you need those things. What father wouldn't care for his children? And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things, they'll be added to you. And again, that priority, that willingness to put our first priority on seeking the Lord, like these Levites and priests did. Seeking the Lord and trusting God for all the material stuff. Folks, look, I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible and hardworking and all those things, but be careful that the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life don't choke out your spiritual life. Whatever you got to do to seek the Lord first, keep your priorities right. You seek the Lord First and foremost, seek the kingdom of first, and your Father will add everything that you need to keep a roof over your head and opportunities to work and food on your table. He's good like that. He's a good Father. He takes care of His children. All He asks of us is that we keep our hearts in the right place and seek to strengthen the things of His kingdom first and foremost. Well, verse 18 tells us, Rehoboam then took for himself as a wife, Maaloth, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and Abihail, the daughter of Eli, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jeush and Shamariah and Zaham. And after he took Maok, the granddaughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah and Atai and Ziza and Shilamoth. Now Rehoboam loved Maokah and the granddaughter of Absalom more than all his wives. Yes, that has an S at the end. Now he's involved in polygamy. And his concubines. Again, those were basically just mistresses, which he kept in a harem. They didn't have the legal rights of a wife, nor did their children. They were just basically women you kept in your harem for personal pleasure. For he took, look at verse 21, 18 wives and 60 concubines. And he begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. Now, understand, not only was this practice of polygamy an ancient thing that was done out of just selfish, lustful pleasure, but it also was a way culturally that kings would try and demonstrate how wealthy they were. Because, look, let me just share you a, a little piece of advice. Each wife, each concubine, and each one of them kiddos, you need to provide for it. So when Solomon had, it says, 700 wives and 300 concubines, yes, did he have unregulated lustful passions? Absolutely. But what Solomon was also saying is, I can provide for 700 wives, 300 concubines in my harem, and all the kids that I produce. That guy's got a lot of money. But he's got a lot of headaches, too, I assure you that. <laughs> he's got a lot of challenges. It's challenging being a good husband to one wife and properly loving and serving and caring for one wife and the children you properly produce according to God's design with one wife and being an efficient, faithful husband and good father. Why in the world <laughs> anybody thinks they'd need a second or a third or an 82nd? But see, the reality is if you can't be content with one, you won't be content with 2 or 12 or 20 or 87. That's the problem. 
If you can't observe God's design with one, then you know, it doesn't matter how many you have. And so that's why we read of these things here. In verse 22, it says, Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king as his successor. And he dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the different territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city. And he gave them provisions, notice, in abundance, trying to display his wealth. And he also sought many wives as well for them, that is for all his sons. So uh, again, not only was he living outside of God's design from Genesis chapter 2 prior to when sin entered the world, one man and one woman as lifelong partners in a monogamous relationship, having children in healthy boundaries and a, a safe, proper environment to experience all that God's intended to be fulfilled. But on top of that, now he's playing favorites. Because of all those wives, it says that he had one wife that he loved more than the rest, verse 21 tells us, and then of that one wife that he loved more than the rest, he picked that one son who wasn't the firstborn to then be a successor, and I assure you this, it caused all kinds of awkward family dynamics. You know, the one thing people, well, I don't understand. How come in the Bible we see these people, you know, David and Solomon, these people, they were supposed to be godly men and they got multiple wives and multiple children and what's up with that and why is that in the Bible? And look, just because something's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. All God's doing is saying that it happened. God's not saying I agree with it. God's design is Genesis chapter 2. That's very clear. And what you see above all else is when you see people with multiple wives and these family dynamics and all these different children, all you see is issues. And that speaks to us of this. Do you want to have a blessed life? Just stay within the parameters of God's boundaries. You do things God's way according to God's design, you will be fulfilled, your life will be blessed, when you try and go outside of God's boundaries, it doesn't work. All you do is create problems for yourself. So whether that's in marriage, family, or any aspect of how you live out your life, just stay in God's boundaries and life will be good. Life will be the way God intends for it to be. Let's stand together. We'll conclude our time there.